Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that A Public Affair is the best podcast in Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station. And it is 1207. You're listening to A Public Affair. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman. Earlier this month, a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. The incident has drawn scorn from rail advocates who point out that the workers on the ground warn that something like this could happen. It's drawn criticism of state and federal transportation regulators, of national media for not focusing enough on the disaster, and so on. It's even been compared for its eerie similarity to Don DeLillo's novel, White Noise. Well, today we're focusing in on the environmental consequences that followed the controlled burn of the hazardous chemical in question. Residents have expressed skepticism that their air and water are free of contamination following that controlled burn. And today we ask, what is that chemical in question? What is it used for? And why was it hurtling past residents of a sleepy Ohio town in the first place? Joining me today is Emily Jeffers, staff attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity and an expert on plastics manufacturing. Emily, thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks for having me. So if you were on social media in the days after February 3rd, you might have seen a giant plume of black smoke rising up just outside East Palestine. Um, Have you seen those videos? I have. Yeah, they're really pretty shocking and it... um almost looks like it's a post-apocalyptic world that we're seeing out there. It does. <laughs> um, can you walk us through what we were actually seeing happening in those videos? Well, sure. The, to the best of my understanding, um, there was a derailment. It was a pretty long train, and um, I think 11, maybe more of the cars were containing hazardous substances. Five of those um, train cars had what is called vinyl chloride, And it's one of the main building blocks of polyvinyl chloride, which is used to make everything from pipes to vinyl tablecloths to uh, vinyl flooring. But anyhow, vinyl chloride is a gas and it is used in the polymerization process and making a lot of plastics. Vinyl chloride is also extremely flammable. And I think that after the derailment, Norfolk Southern was very concerned there would be an explosion. And so they decided to have a what they called a controlled release and burn of the substance. Um, and so to, to avoid a huge explosion with you know resulting shrapnel. So what you saw there was the vinyl chloride burning into the atmosphere. 
So uh, so there was a, a unified com- command to uh, have this controlled release um, to burn off this chemical vinyl chloride. Um, and that was recommended by both, uh, I think, uh, health and environmental officials as well as the rail company, Norfolk Southern. Um, can you can you tell us about the process like there I believe there was venting of this material and then it was being burned in this really truly large like plume of spoke smoke um I think uh nearby residents were evacuated uh I think even residents with children were threatened with arrest if they didn't evacuate in this one or two mile area um can you tell us about like the the process of what venting that looks like well, to, to the best of my understanding, they decided to vent it to, you know, avoid this potential huge explosion um, and to burn it. Now, of course, vinyl chloride is a very hazardous chemical, and, and we've known for over 40 years that it's a carcinogen. Um, but in this horrible situation, they decided they needed to avoid the explosion possibility, so decided to just burn the chemical, release it into the atmosphere, and um, hope for the best. I think, you know, it at the time, it was such an, a huge emergency. They they made the decision they could, but yeah, uh, they didn't have any good options. Yeah. But right now, it's a huge emergency. Yeah. Um. So yes, the the five rail cars were were unstable and could have possibly exploded. Um. You know, announced Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Um. Residents were evacuated, and then they were told, "Come back. <laughs> we want you to come back." Right, and right. I think that there is. I think after like five days, I, I could be a little off. Just after after a matter of days, though. And while officials, again, environmental officials, I think both the state and the feds are involved. Um, they're monitoring the air and the water, but I think there is some skepticism that it is safe to return to is it possible for this chemical um when it's being burned off to seep into groundwater into surface water um you know into the grass that your children play in right yeah absolutely and people are already seeing evidence of massive fish kills in the ohio river and um you know it's really a canary in the coal mine in terms of the effects that we're thinking that we'll, we'll be seeing for potentially decades to come it's highly highly hazardous i can't really emphasize this enough and while it was burned, burning a vinyl chloride um, and any chloride compound also forms another deadly compound uh, in the dioxin family, which is a persistent organic pollutant and it enters our air, our water, our soil. And um, so, you know, by burning vinyl chloride, they maybe um, turn vinyl chloride into another deadly chemical. And even the vinyl chloride that wasn't burned is escaped and is now in, in the regions water and you know a lot of folks are concerned about groundwater with good with good reason um so yeah there's a i think that we're sort of starting to get an understanding of the huge contamination we're talking about but it's going to be years before we really see all the impacts we're going to talk more about pvc and vinyl chloride later on in the show but can you tell us when we talk about how it's uh toxic and how it's a carcinogen um can you tell us about all of the health effects i mean is it something where you're exposed to and it's not great or you're exposed to it and you keel over like how bad is this um well vinyl chloride i don't know exactly the the thresholds at which becomes a hazardous material you know what level of exposure there's very very well documented um 
evidence that it causes liver cancer and potentially other types of cancers, brain, lung, um, blood cancers. It also has uh, ramifications for endocrine disorders and potential reproductive harm. Um, so this is something that <clears throat> I think the Department of Health and Human, Human Services designated it as a carcinogen over 40 years ago. And EPA as well has recognized that it's a carcinogen, yet we continue to use it at huge quantities in making PVC. Okay. So we're talking this hour about the role of plastics manufacturing and and this disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. My guest again is Emily Jeffers. She's a staff attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity and an expert on the plastics industry. And we are taking your calls this hour. I'll just get that out there now. You can call us at 608-256-2001. Again, that number, 608 608- Two five six two thousand and one. 256 When you call, you'll get connected with Mary Jo, our receptionist, and she'll pass you on to the studio. Um, so, Emily Jeffers, um, can you... Let's dive a little bit into the why the, the all the intersections of what happened uh, in this disaster. This is just one hazardous chemical being shipped across the country via train, there are uh, modern safety mechanisms for transporting hazardous materials, but those weren't really in play here. Can you can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So this these hazardous chemicals were being shipped by rail, which is um, pretty dangerous for all the people who live along rail lines, which is a lot of the country lives within a mile of a rail line, and folks don't really necessarily recognize that the the trains they see going by are carrying these really hazardous compounds. Um, but anyhow, these these uh, chemicals at issue here were being used in the plastics industry and in the plastics production process, which is very hazardous from extraction of um, the fossil fuels that are used and refined to make the petrochemicals that become the finalized plastics. Um, you know, there are harms in every stage of the plastics life cycle from extraction to transport to um, what is called an ethane cracker where they uh, transform the ethane to ethylene at very high pressures and heats and it causes a lot of uh, emissions of air and water pollutants. Um, and then the polymerization process where the ethylene is polymerized into various types of plastic, including PVC. Um, so everywhere, really, that plastic touches along its life cycle, it, it results in huge emissions of air and uh, uh, water hazardous chemicals. So, um, you know, you are there restrictions on where these hazardous materials, vinyl chloride being one, where they can be transported along a rail line, right? Like Madison has trains, right? <laughs> where right. we're broadcasting <laughs> from. Um, I, I don't know if there are locally, but uh, in general, is that something that um, rail lines keep in mind or is that something that kind of gets ignored? Well, I mean, supposedly the government is regulating these trains, but so often we see accidents like this that occur and it might not be the scale that we've seen this last month in East Palestine, but it's very, very common for there to be derailments and spills of um, other types of chemicals. So I, I wouldn't say this is a complete aberration and the rail industry has been pushing for the expansion of more hazardous chemicals and more substances to be allowed to be transported by rail. And the Trump administration, um, gave a broad 
a stroke approval for the transport of uh, liquid natural gas, LNG, to be transported by rail, which up until that point had been strictly prohibited because it's extremely flammable. Um, and the rail industry has just been advocating on, on its own behalf that they want to continue to transport hazardous materials. They want to do uh, more of it. And so, um, yeah, we've just been seeing a lot over the last few years and before just, you know, horrible accidents. Other hosts on WORT have talked with uh, rail workers themselves and kind of the the labor advocate side of this. And folks have been pushing, folks in, who are rail workers have been pointing out that exactly this type of disaster might happen uh, for years. And I want to talk a little bit more about this train safety rule Um in 2018, uh, that required these special brakes, right? That that if you are transporting hazardous chemicals, um, you you have to have these highly flammable. Uh, sorry, if you're transporting these chemicals, you have to have these special brakes, right? That um, kind of lock up all of the cars at once rather than having each car uh, of the train, and these are really long trains, um, stop individually. And so in 2018, the Department of Transportation under the Trump administration uh, pretty much let that pass. Um, the Biden administration has not reinstated that break rule. I know Pete Buttigieg, head of the DOT, um, ha- has implied that he's constrained uh, from reissuing that mandate, and he's come under some fire for doing that. Um, Do you have anything else to to say about these breaks or or the rail industry and their intersection with the the hazardous materials industry? Uh, Well, you know, I don't know if this incident, if the break um, issue was necessarily one of the causes or, or could have avoided this disaster. But I do think the underlying issue that we need to be thinking about is why are we using these humongous volumes of hazardous chemicals in our everyday life? And why isn't there stricter requirements, not just for the transport of these hazardous chemicals, but really for their use? What happens after they are used by consumers and then discarded? And what happens to those um, hazardous chemicals? Do they leach into our water? Do they leach into our soil and air and and how are they contaminating regular folks and, and wildlife and ecosystems so i think that there's definitely an issue to you know tightening up railway regulations but that we also have to look deeper and think why aren't we banning these chemicals that are so hazardous that any exposure is potentially leading to cancers and and other illnesses yeah well, let's talk about, so this train was on its way somewhere else, right? And can we talk a little bit about the where of petrochemical manufacturing? Like, where do you find, it was on its way to be made into plastic. Where do you find these plastics manufacturers? For the most part, there are two main areas where plastic and petrochemical manufacturing occur. And that's in the Ohio River Valley in Appalachia, and then down in the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana. Um, the area is technically, you know, between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, but it's called Cancer Alley because there's such a high incidence of cancer caused by these petrochemical facilities. And so this train was heading to a facility, I believe, in Pennsylvania. Um, and that's one of the new hotspots for the petrochemical industry. They're taking a lot of the natural gas that uh, is extracted via fracking and then turning it into plastics. 
So when we're looking for an example of environmental racism in, in you know, the, that concept where um, it's built into the system where it might affect more communities of color and low income communities, um, would you describe it as an example of, of environmental racism? Absolutely. Oil and gas industry is putting these facilities that are highly polluting and dangerous, they're putting them in poor communities of color primarily, um, places that are economically disadvantaged. They're poor, they don't fight back as much, um, or they don't have the power, the, the powers that be don't listen to them. And so you see all these petrochemical facilities popping up in Cancer Alley and in Appalachia. And that's where the huge um, disparate impacts we see in terms of air and water pollution. Okay. Well, let's walk through the life cycle of this vinyl chloride that was um, burned off and and turned into another hazardous chemical. Um, So in plastics manufacturing, vinyl chloride is the precursor to something that we have all touched. We all know what it is, PVC, you know, pipe (laughs) and a million other things. Um, There was there's a literal pipe in my office as I was prepping for this show. And I went up to like think for a second and I just saw on the side PVC. (laughs) So it really is um, one of the most used plastics in the world. Can you walk us through how it's the life cycle? How is it formed? How is it made uh, and transported? What industries does it end up in? And then where does it end up when we no longer have a use for it? Uh, Yeah, so PVC is used, you know, everyone knows what PVC pipe is, but PVC is also used in a lot of different household items that folks might not recognize as PVC. Um, You know, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the vinyl flooring that is very popular right now, um, that's PVC. Um, A lot of kids' toys are manufactured with PVC. It's like a plastic and you can add additives to make it softer or more bendable. You see tablecloths, you see um, single-use packaging that are used for takeout. All that stuff is PVC, um, and it comes in a lot of different forms, and so folks might not recognize it if they don't just, you know, see a pipe, a PVC pipe. Um, but PVC, it has, there's a huge amount of pollution that, uh, as a result of its production, and then, you know, once it's used, there is, we're starting to see more and more evidence that the use of PVC itself is harmful to consumers, Oh, that's but the science is still sort of slow on that because there haven't been a whole lot of studies and because the industry doesn't have to demonstrate that it's safety before they put it into broader circulation. But the but another issue, it's a pretty big issue, is what happens once it's disposed of? When, when we put it in a landfill or if it's incinerated, what happens to all those cancer-causing compounds that are make up PVC itself? And the answer is they leach, you know, plastic and PVC included, breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces and the chemicals leach out of that plastic and then they enter our soil, they enter our water and our air um, and it contaminates our ecosystem and it harms our own human health. And, and, and that's something that I think everyone can sort of, well, I think everyone should be concerned about it. Yeah. So, I mean, the the reason I was so interested in this this topic and this disaster is, A, we, we have heard a lot about it. Um, and I think there are so many different angles, angles to take and ways in of maybe issues that are we're struggling with. Right. There's labor issues. There's um, infrastructure issues. There are environmental issues. There's kind of broader systemic uh, things at play in this disaster that just happened to 
play out in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, but it could have been kind of anywhere else. Um, as we're thinking about uh, the the role of this this plastic, I mean, so how does it start? Is it, it fracking, right? You got to get the material somewhere. To, where do you get vinyl chloride from? Yeah, plastics in general are fossil fuels. They're just in a different form. So plastics are usually 99% fossil fuels. So the way you get that is by drilling, by fracking, by extracting the fossil fuel from the earth and then um, transforming it under usually very high uh, temperatures and pressures into um, the building blocks that become the polymers, the plastics that we use in our everyday life. Okay, so we can think about fracking, right? And we've seen in you know other states and kind of the um, the Oklahoma area of uh, the United States where fracking has caused a huge increase in earthquakes and issues with water um, displacement. And that even affects Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin, while there isn't fracking, um, to my knowledge, in the state, the western part of the state. Uh, is used to uh, to that's where a lot of the sand used in the fracking process is pulled from, and that has caused issues uh, where community members uh, have have you know there's a lot of dust in the air and the silica that is the sand this high quality sand in the western part of Wisconsin that gets into your lungs and is itself a carcinogen because it doesn't get out of your lungs so. Um, you know, I just I, when I'm talking about the life cycle, I'm talking all the way back, right? Um, so we go to, from fracking, and we it's transported along these rail lines uh, where there are not a ton of regulations. So you don't need uh, these special brakes for a hazardous chemical like vinyl chloride, correct? To my knowledge, that's something that the Trump administration rolled back, and I don't, I don't think Biden has taken care of it yet. Right, right. So then it gets uh, transported to a community, uh, w- typically low-income um, community of color, where then it's manufactured and then it it it's sold, right? And that's where the profit happens, and that's sold and used in construction or industry or even children's toys, and then it's discarded, ends up probably not in recycling, probably in a landfill. Um, and if it's not... You know, and I just want to add, PVC especially is not recycled. It's generally okay. not considered recyclable. Okay. So um, it's not the kind of plastic that folks generally can even recycle, even if they wanted to. Okay. Thank you for that. And so we, so it ends up in a landfill, maybe, or it ends up kind of littering... Um, our environment and with these plasticizers leaching into the environment um, as it breaks down. Now, I will add, you know, we, we've done stories about uh, landfills and and uh, the, our local landfill, right? And landfills are regulated, right? And they're, they're lined and um, things don't typically get loose into the natural environment. But um, how much of PVC in the industry do you think ends up in a landfill versus ends up in the ocean or breaking down naturally in the or unnaturally in the environment. Yeah, it definitely doesn't break down naturally in the environment. It, it might get smaller, um, but it doesn't. You know, it's not compostable. It's not like an apple core or something like that. Um, and if it's in a landfill, I think it's probably mostly in landfills or incinerated um, because it is the PVC is not well vinyl chloride. One of the building blocks of PVC is considered hazardous. PVC itself is not. Um, which is something that we've, my organization has been trying to uh, change 
because when a substance is not considered hazardous, then the requirements for disposal are, I mean, they, you know, there are some landfill requirements that are applicable to all things, including grass clippings and orange peels, but there are no special requirements for these chemicals and, and the compounds that they contain. So they are just going to be discarded just like, you know, your old jeans or um, mm. your, your apple core if it's not in, in the compost. So when I say there is leaching, I don't think this is ne- necessarily leachate that has been captured by landfills. And it, it is potentially in our soil and our air and our water. And, and that's what studies have been showing for years. And more and more science is coming out showing how um, prominent plastics are in our environment and, and how much plastics people eat every year and ingest and breathe and are in our drinking water. So it, it's really become a pretty all pervasive uh, material. I think uh, we're, we've kind of maybe become accustomed to that cycle, at least I have, right, where there's a new study that finds there's a lot more plastic in some part of your body or in newborns or in, um, you know, any kind of thing. Um, and the, these studies get released and maybe get passed over. The same thing with PFAS, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just a continual drama of, hey, there's PFAS in our lakes. Hey, there's PFAS, you know, in your... In your whatever, there are uh, there are microplastics in your in your drinking water. Cool. Um, so, I guess do you have any um, do you have any advice for consuming some of these studies for folks to take notice and not kind of just like digest it with the rest of the the day's news? Yeah, I, I mean, I sympathize with folks who see these studies and just kind of get overwhelmed because that's how I feel too. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what we have to take away from is that we need to demand better of our government. They cannot allow these chemical, these companies, these oil and gas companies that are now turning into plastics companies, they can't continue to pollute our bodies and our environment in the way they have been. And plastics are really expected to explode in the next 50 years. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of, of, our, of our environment and our health and our children's health. And we really need to take a think about future generations. If plastics are already being found in our um, breast milk and our bloodstream and plastics are predicted to explode in the next decade, do we really want that for future generations? Um, so I think that we need to demand better of our government. I think we need to require or, you know, them to do studies to ensure that these materials are not going to be harmful to health and and the environment. Yeah. It's 1233. You're listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman. We're talking this hour about the role of plastics manufacturing, a conversation sparked by the recent rail disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, but is so much more broad um, than uh, one incident. We have a caller on the line. Sierra has a question or comment about chlorine gas and the train derailment in East Palestine. Sierra, uh, go ahead. You're on there. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a comment and a question. Um, Some years ago, not too many, uh, there was a train derailment and an entire neighborhood was engulfed in a cloud of chlorine gas and a bunch of people died. Um, People couldn't get to safety because the locks were melting and just all kinds of horrific things. And so I just wanted to throw that in there. That was a train derailment. And also I was just curious 
Is chlorine gas in any way related to this uh, polyvinyl chloride? Thank you for your show. Thank you, Sierra. Emily Jeffers, um, to Sierra's question, is chlor- what is chlorine gas, and, and is that found in the plastics industry or PVC specifically? I'm sorry, I, I think I cut out. I couldn't hear what you all were saying. Oh, no, that's okay. Well, we're glad that you're here with us now. Um, we just heard from Sierra, uh, a caller, and she mentioned a train derailment um, that happened, I think she's referring to one in South Carolina, although I could be wrong, um, that resulted in the release of chlorine gas as the result of a, a train derailment. And she wanted to know more about tra- uh, more about chlorine gas and whether that's related to PVC or other plastics manufacturing. Gosh, that's a great question. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I know that chlorine is uh, incredibly toxic and as it is released and it's um, burned, it turns into a dioxin, which is a very persistent organic pollutant. Um, but I don't know if that chlorine was related to the plastics industry. It wouldn't certainly wouldn't surprise me. Although South Carolina is generally not um, a place where we can, you know, we think about petrochemical manufacturing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I want to thank Sierra for that question because I'm just looking up one online. The Graniteville train crash in 2005 in South Carolina. That was the same uh, company. Uh, the same rail company that uh, happened in East Palestine, uh, North Norfolk Southern, and um, it looks like two hundred and over two hundred and fifty people were treated for toxic chlorine exposure. Um, so thanks, Sierra, for bringing that up to us. Uh, if you have a question or a comment about plastics manufacturing or the recent rail disaster, you can call us 608-256-2001. Uh, Mary Jo, our receptionist, will greet you and get you to the correct studio and uh, we can get you on the air. That's 608-256-2001. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Emily Jeffers, if you could talk to us more about your, you mentioned briefly, a petition, um, and that's part of why we're having you on. So the place where you work, the Center for Biological Diversity, has been pressing the EPA for almost a decade to regulate uh, PVC and declare it hazardous, as you mentioned. Tell us about your petition and about your other work um, to, to get it recognized as hazardous. Yeah, so in 2014, we've been working on this issue for a long time. In 2014, we submitted a legal petition to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, asking them to designate PVC and all the associated plasticizers and phthalates with it as um, hazardous materials under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, which is one of the nation's preeminent um, hazardous waste laws. We asked them to designate disposed PVC specifically um, as hazardous, and we detailed why it fit the legal definitions of hazardous waste um, and, you know, detailed all the health impacts, health and environmental impacts associated with PVC. Um, We didn't hear from the EPA for years and years, and in 2021, we filed a lawsuit um, compelling EPA to respond because they have a legal duty to respond to these types of petitions. And in 2022, we settled with the EPA. Um, they said that they would publish a draft decision on our petition in January of 2023, which is just last month. 
and then they would accept public comment on their tentative decision and then publish a final at some point afterwards. So last month we received a, um, a denial of our petition. It was a tentative denial and they laid out the reasons why we thought they thought that we didn't sufficiently justify why PVC discarded PVC and its requirements under RICRA. And, um, and then they accepted public comments. The public comment period was just, just closed um, a little over a week ago. And so we submitted comments why we thought that they had ignored a lot of the studies showing PVC is, is leaching into um, our environment and causing human health impacts. Um, but anyhow, it was just sort of like, I mean, it's this horrible disaster occurred in the middle of a public comment period where the EPA was soliciting information on why PVC they thought should not be res regulated as a hazardous waste. So for those who are a little unfamiliar with how environmental regulation um, works now, um, can you walk us through, so um, is it, what is the next step, right, toward putting pressure on the EPA um, to regulate and, and PVC and declare it hazardous, right? Once you do a petition um, mm -hmm. and you force them to respond, um, what's next? Well, we'll have to see what their final decision is. They could change course and that. I've certainly seen government agencies have a tentative decision going one way and then change their mind in the face of um, opposition and and make a different final, but we'll see. And, and what we're hoping from this um, rulemaking is that a designation of PVC as hazardous waste, that would put the burden on um, on landfill operators and other folks who are disposing PVC to ensure that it is safely stored, transported, and disposed of, which would create an incentive to accelerate transition to alternate um alternate substances because PVC, you know, it's, 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 it's got a lot of problems and we think, and I think a lot of other scientists think that it doesn't really have any place in our households. Would that also apply to all of the precursors to PVC? You mentioned the additives and vinyl chloride. Mm -hmm. Would that put regulations on people who are transporting these substances as in Norfolk Southern and the train derailment? Well, technically, vinyl chloride is a hazardous substance, and they it still mm. didn't have, um, you know, the things that would prevent a disaster like this from happening. Um, you know, in fact, if PVC was regulated as a hazardous substance, I think it would be a lot. Um, it, would, it, would, it would open the marketplace to alternatives because people would be incentivized to use um, different materials. And so I think that it would create a marketplace for alternates. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it would be overall positive. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you for, for walking us through your petition. Um, I know we're, we're having you go in and out just a little bit on your end. Um, but uh, I think, I think all is sorted now. Um, so, you know, this is by far not the first time we've talked about plastics on this show or on WORT. Um, we, we've talked with a number of, of researchers and lawyers and experts uh, on the plastics industry. Um, the feeling that I come away with um, is that, I, you know, I always want to think about the alternative, right? And you mentioned even that this might 
this petition, if ad- adopted, might um, encourage growth in alternatives to to PVC. But what are those alternatives, um, and how do you feasibly get to a world where, um, you know, we we stop producing so much of this this substance that is so, you know, it's the one of the most common plastics in the world. Right. Um, you know, a lot of PVC is, um, well, first of all, plastics were only invented in the last 70 years. So I don't think that you can say we can't go back to a world before plastics because they're really a relatively recent invention. Nor do I think that folks are saying we need to get rid of all plastics. It's just that there have been, there's been such an explosion of plastics and in, in particular single-use plastics, plastics that folks use for you know, maybe five minutes before they dispose of them and then they end up in a landfill. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and nor do I want to be the person to say, what should the alternatives be? I think there are a lot out there. And I don't think the government also should say what the alternatives should be. But I think there, if there are sufficient regulations that make, make sure that whatever exists has to be sufficiently protective of human health and, and the environment, mm-hmm. that the market will take care of what those and that will be sorted out you know through the marketplace okay emily i think we're we're having you go in just in in and out a little bit um so i think our producer might be giving you a call and switching you over um to that because it's getting a little bit tough to hear you breaking up but in the meantime um we, I want to remind folks that we are listening to uh, Public Affair. I'm your host, Shelly Pittman, and we're talking about uh, plastics manufacturing. We're also talking about the rail disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. And um, do you have any questions about what happened in East Palestine? Or do you have questions about the role of plastics manufacturing? Um, There are lots of different types of plastics out. Um, I think in 2021, we spoke with Laura Sullivan, who is a reporter at National Public Radio, um, who is sort of on the plastics and recycling beat. We spoke with her about an expose that um, about 10% of plastic is actually um, ends up recycled, that most of it isn't feasible to recycle, as our guest said, and that plastic companies knew this to be true for decades and instead put the onus and the blame for using plastics on the individual consumer. So you can find that on our website at wortfm.org. Is our, our guest Emily Jeffers there yet? I'm back on. Thanks for your patience. No, that's okay. I know uh, I know you're dealing with a, ra- a lot right now, so uh, technology <laughs> happens. So thank you so much for switching over. Um, I don't know how much of that yeah, you caught, but um, I was pointing listeners to our interview with Laura Sullivan, a reporter at National Public Radio, um, who came out with a big project in, in 2021 that showed that most plastic doesn't end up being recycled. It's not even feasible to recycle. You can't really break down those polymers once you've kind of built them. Um, and that plastics companies knew this to be true, but instead put the onus and the blame for not recycling or for recycling on the individual consumer. I'm, I'm wondering if you have an, anything to say about that investigation. Yeah, I think that that's something that folks who've been working in the plastic space have known for a long time. And it was really validating to see this reporting, you know, showing explicitly that the plastics, the oil and gas industry, 
knew that recycling was not a viable option. And not only was it not viable, but like it was didn't make economic sense because it is so, so cheap to make plastics, virgin plastics, that it's never going to pan out. Recycling is never going to make economic sense the way it does with glass and aluminum and some other substances. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought that was excellent reporting and it just really highlights the fact that if we want to cut back on our plastics consumption, we need to stop making plastics. Mm-hmm. So I we have another comment from a listener who did not want to be on the air. And I, I know that you're not the necessary expert on alternatives to plastics. That's for uh, other smart people to figure out and for the market to figure out. But we did have a caller um, who wanted to leave us with a single comment, hemp plastics, and wanted to put that to you. Uh, Emily Jeffers, do you have any knowledge about what hemp? Pla- I don't really know. I'm assuming it comes from the hemp plant, but I don't really know much more than that. I don't know. You know, I've heard some um, some interesting things coming out of the alternative space um, in terms of hemp, in terms of seaweed and algae. I'm not really up to speed on all those and, and how well they, you know, break down. Um, but I think it's super exciting. And I'm, I'm I hope that, you know, more innovation continues in, in that area. I do know that um, due to the most recent farm bill, there's been a lot more, uh, the 2018 farm bill, so not entirely too recent anymore, um, there has been a lot of exploration of hemp and all its different properties, whether that's cannabis or growing the physical um, plant, um, the cannabis plant, and research into that and loosening a lot of the restrictions on that, uh, perhaps for some research as well. Um, So... uh, we got a little discombobulated uh, when we had you switch over, but I, I was asking you about an alternative to to plastics, and, and I know you're not the experts, but I'm wondering, you know, what is the balance of individual responsibility versus the responsibility to change these structures that feel like they are difficult? I mean, they're there's so much involved in this industry, right? Um, and you're pushing mm-hmm. for a very specific, actionable step, and it's still hard. So I, I'm, I, can you talk about how, to, how do you exist? I mean, do you notice yourself not using as many plastics now? Um, and what do you, how should our listeners exist in this world that they know um, maybe we shouldn't be using so many plastics? It's still difficult to change on an individual level. It's so hard to change because the world around us is just made of single-use plastics. And and sometimes it's just you can't avoid it. And I don't think you should feel bad about it if you can't avoid using single-use plastics. Um, What I try to do is I try to minimize the single-use plastics that I consume. Um, But when, you know, it's infeasible or it's like way too expensive to do use an alternative, then I don't sweat it. Um, I do try and focus my energies on on real big systemic changes that, you know, normal folks, this is my job, so normal folks, I don't expect them to be, um, you know, lobbying their representatives and, and suing the EPA, but I do think the onus should be on the government to make sure these substances are safe for us, for our grandchildren, and for the species who share this earth with us. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think that the it really should the we need to put pressure on the government to make sure these oil and gas companies, these plastic companies don't get away with poisoning our air and water. And so how can folks become involved with your work at the Center for Biological Diversity? Uh, It sounds like the comment period has ended. So 
maybe public comment is still not being accepted, but are there other ways that folks can, um, you know, show support or, um, or help you do your work? Yeah. So my organization is called the Center for Biological Diversity, and you can find our website at biologicaldiversity.org. And we have a lot of campaigns relating to plastics and, and a lot of other environmental. Um, we have a whole program of folks who work on environmental health. Um, I'm in the oceans team, um, but we, you know, we work on plastics because plastics are a huge contaminant of our of our oceans and and um, really harmful to all the creatures that that live within the ocean. But when we started working on plastics, we realized that if we're just going to address the plastics that get in the ocean, um, we're we're not we're never going to solve the problem. We had to move upstream. We had to start thinking about plastics production, and how do we get less, less plastic um, from being made in the first place. So, so I encourage folks to check out our website, become a member of the center, um, and start engaging on these issues. We often have action alerts and, and volunteer opportunities for people and, and encourage people to get involved. Can you tell us more about your, your other projects or campaigns as part of the, the Oceans team? Are you now focused just on the production of uh, plastics, or are you still doing work to uh, prevent, prevent that in ocean, ocean, ocean pollution? Um, well, we do a lot of work on um, ensuring, um, well, you know, we, we want to try and reform some really unsustainable fishing practices that entangle um, whales and are really harmful to sea turtles and dolphins and whales and other species. So that's one aspect of our work. Another big aspect is um, trying to fight oil, offshore oil and gas um, exploration and production so we're often um, fighting um, big projects up in Alaska or in the Gulf of Mexico mm. uh, for failing to comply with environmental laws when they're drilling for oil in the ocean, you know, which is all really related to plastics because plastics are fossil fuels. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is just really very interconnected. It depends on, you know, which, which end of the string you pull at, but um, the oil and gas industry really has its fingers in a lot of destructive practice, environmental practices. Mm-hmm. Do you do any work on microplastics? When plastics break down, they become tiny, tiny, tiny bits of plastic that are really hard to get rid uh, of in the environment and especially in the ocean. Can you tell us more about what microplastics are and, and any work you're doing there? Sure. <clears throat> so yeah, you're right. Microplastics are basically when plastics, plastics never go away. They just turn into smaller pieces of plastic. And scientists are documenting every day, every week, there's a new study showing uh, microplastics are found in the deepest part of the ocean or microplastics are found in our drinking water, in our beer, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've been trying to address microplastics um, for a while now. We tried to get um, the Environmental Protection Agency to use the Clean Water Act to set a water quality standard that was specific to microplastics. And we've also used the Clean Water Act to try and get EPA to recognize water bodies that are not meeting their designated beneficial uses because they have so many microplastics in them. And we had some success in Hawaii a few year, a couple of years ago now where EPA recognized that some beaches in Hawaii are so contaminated with plastics and microplastics that they are designated as impaired and they have to, Hawaii, the state of Hawaii needs to start cleaning them up and addressing the sources of the pollution. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, 
Emily Jeffers, do you have any final thoughts as we come up on the end of the hour about um, thoughts on East Palestine, thoughts on changing the structure of the plastics industry, about environmental regulation? Oh, well, it's just such a horrible, horrible tragedy. My heart goes out to all the folks in East Palestine and in the surrounding areas. Um, But I think that if we really need to move the dial and and not let this kind of accident and horrible disaster happen again, we need to take a hard look at the chemicals that we are consuming and that are are going into our plastic production. And and we need to think hard about whether or not these plastics are, are worth the harm that they're causing. All right. Emily Jeffers, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Emily Jeffers is a staff researcher, uh, staff attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity and an expert on plastics manufacturing. We will link to their petition to ban PVC in the show notes for today's episode online. And uh, we have been talking about the role of plastics manufacturing in light of the disaster in East Palestine when a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed. And we want to thank you so much for calling in or giving us your comments. My favorite comment hemp plastics no question just hemp plastics you've been listening to a public affair i'm your host shali Pittman. thanks to our callers this hour and thanks to producer jade isiri ramos engineer ashley roberts and receptionist mary joe carousel baird will be back next week letters and politics is up next you're listening to Community Radio, WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it.